As you're taking your seat, you can go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to the book of First Peter. Um, I noticed that uh, there was a lot of people on time for church today. I, I couldn't believe Every, all, all these people here at the start of the service was such a huge blessing. Um, not only that, is you look incredibly awake, uh, which, is, which is also good news. Um, it is really sweet. I know this is an unusual time, as Pastor Brian mentioned earlier, um, but it is a sweet time. And uh, it doesn't matter what time we meet. The point is that we are meeting here together under God's word for the purpose of God's glory and desiring to hear from him. So as you're kind of getting yourself situated in 1 Peter, as we dive in, we've been studying through this letter of 1 Peter. I want to maybe just um, um, maybe kind of try to draw our hearts towards a common theme. I, I think all of us can relate to this. Every one of us has things in our lives uh, that we own but we never use, Right? Um, right now, maybe even you're thinking of some of those things. And um, we purchased these things or we acquired these things believing that maybe this would actually help change our life. In fact, maybe that was the line you used to sell your significant other on getting that thing. I see some of you looking at your spouse right now. A bit of a sore spot. Things in our lives that we have accumulated but we never really use. We thought that they would be useful to us, but we haven't really utilized them in any way that they were designed to be used. Maybe you have that gym membership that got that first uh, week of use after New Year's. That Fitbit that maybe hasn't counted steps in over a year. Maybe that daily planner you thought was going to help you organize your life, but your life is in chaos because that planner is sitting on your nightstand collecting dust. Maybe that journal that you purchased thinking that you were going to um, utilize it to continue to progress in your spiritual life, or maybe that dental floss <laughs> that is now underneath the kitchen sink. Instead of fulfilling their intended purpose, maybe they're sitting on a shelf somewhere. Maybe they're buried in a box in a garage or a cupboard somewhere in your house collecting dust, not being used and the reality is some of them could actually maybe um, be life-changing. They could lead towards significant changes in your life if we actually would use them. I mean, think about how comforting it would be to have a cavity-free life. To at least relieve the shame of walking in to see the hygienist and having to look them in the eye and say, no, I didn't floss again. You know, sadly, there are many of us who do this with spiritual truths. We come across life-changing truths. We acquire or we come into possession of things that are truly life-changing, deep, meaningful theology, things that open our eyes to the wonders and beauties of Jesus Christ, things that could truly, if implemented, um, produce great transformation in our lives, and yet we end up sticking them on a shelf somewhere in our life, burying them in a box. They sit collecting dust, not being utilized the way that God intended them to be utilized in our life. The Apostle Peter has just unfolded some of these deep, life-changing, life-transforming truths in the first 12 verses of 1 Peter. He has given to us deep and meaningful theology that is intended by God to actually transform the way we live our lives to impact us in the here and now, in our day-to-day -day living. He has told us that we have been given by God a living hope, the gift of a salvation that was won by Jesus Christ, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, a hope that is alive, a hope that gives us life here and now, and a hope that points us towards an eternal life that is to come. 
he's told us about what awaits those who are in Christ Jesus, that we have an inheritance that awaits us, that is kept in heaven for us. He's described it in all of its, its majesty, in all of its beauty, in all of its wonder. The danger that we face is to hear these magnificent truths and simply stick them on a shelf in our lives to collect dust and never actually take them and utilize them, to put them into practice and to see them bear a significant spiritual fruit in our lives. The last thing that Peter wants us to do is throw these truths on a shelf. Now, he wants these truths to change us. The Spirit of God wants these truths to change us. We have a living hope, but here's the question. Are we actually living hope? Are our lives being lived in such a way to demonstrate that we truly do have a hope, an objective reality that is pulling us through this life, through some of the unique challenges we face, through some of the pain and circumstances of this life? You can ask yourself this question this morning, is my living hope changing me? Let's make this very personal this morning. Is the living hope that I have in Jesus Christ, is it changing the way that I endure suffering? Is it changing the way that I view my circumstances? Is it changing the way I live my life on a day-to-day basis? Because that's exactly what it's supposed to do. In fact, that's what Peter is going to tell us in verse 13 through 16, and actually throughout the remainder of this entire letter. Let's read 13 through 16 together of chapter 1. He says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter wants the hope that we have, the living hope that we have to change us, and this passage is going to drive us towards that end, so Here's how we're going to unpack this. Living hope changes me when I first remain spiritually alert, and that requires a disciplined mind. My living hope changes me when I remain spiritually alert. We are called in this passage to be a spiritually alert, to have a mind that is disciplined, that is tuned to the truth of God's word. Here Peter actually gets into the first exhortation of this letter. I don't know if you, you've noticed this, but as we went through the first 12 verses of this letter, there have been no commands given to God's people. Do you realize that? He hasn't commanded us to do anything. He has simply been unfolding to us the beautiful truths of our salvation. But here, in verse 13, we get our very first imperative, the very first command to God's people. And here's what he's saying. Put this now into practice. The word, uh, therefore, connects us back into all that he said in in verses 1 through 12. Again, all of those beautiful gospel truths that he has reminded us of to encourage our hearts, to fuel our souls. And notice this, that here Peter can't help but reach back into these truths to remind us, listen, that we can't do anything unless we're first grounded in a right theology. It is our beliefs that influence our behavior. We've talked about this before. 
The more you anchor yourself in right beliefs, the more you're able to live with right behavior. And I want you just to see a bit of a paradigm here that we see throughout all of the scriptures. You see, God never calls us simply to obey him. He calls us first to believe in him. There are many people who have religious beliefs or or maybe even many Christians who try to operate like this. They operate on a duty-bound kind of Christianity. They, They simply want to do the right things. They simply want to behave the right way. And the the problem with that is is it's very easy to slip into a form of religion or religiosity. External behavior without any true heart transformation. But the Word of God constantly reminds us that what God is after is our heart. God is not just after a right external behavior. We are not interested in behavior modification. We're not interested in moralistic living. We are interested in heart and life transformation. And the way that that happens repeatedly throughout the Bible is through this pattern, this paradigm we see of um, indicatives and imperatives. Truth things we must believe, and then therefore, because of this truth, how we must behave. And what Peter does here is he brings us back in again to the belief, and he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Here's the first command in the entire letter right here. Set your hope fully. That's the first command. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here, he reminds us that we obey not to earn God's favor. Listen, this is so important. We obey not to earn God's favor, but we obey because we have received God's favor. We don't obey for grace. In other words, we obey from grace. And to mix those two things up is utterly disastrous in the Christian life. Again, the driving command of this verse is this, set your hope fully. And you can see right out the gates that Peter is concerned with our mind, how we think. This is of ultimate importance to Peter. Remember, Peter has just hit the reset button in their minds. He's talking to a group of believers who who have given their life to Jesus Christ, and as a result, they're suffering. They've been dispersed. They're homeless. They've counted the cost. They're paying the price for following Jesus Christ. And so what he does is he meets them in the midst of their suffering, and he gives them a vision of a future reality that awaits them. He paints for them this marvelous picture to remind them, listen, that no matter what you're going through here and now, there's something so much better to look forward to. You know, keep your mind not on your present circumstances, but keep your mind set upon what awaits you because of the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. We, we know something about this. Every one of us has, has maybe planned a vacation that we really look forward to, right? You ever had that experience where you start to plan a vacation and, you know, maybe life has been busy, things have been a little bit chaotic, work has been crazy, just, you just need a break, you need to get out of here and you need to get your mind in a place of relaxation. So um, here's kind of what Peter has done. He's given us a picture like this. Wow, that looks nice. This would have been cruel to do, by the way, in a couple of months but maybe it would have had more impact. You see, Peter has kind of painted this picture for us. You know, we know what it's like to, to look towards something. Maybe, again, you, know, you, you look at this picture. This is what Peter has done. He's painted this beautiful picture. Just look at it for a minute, okay? It's beautiful. I mean, I want to make that my screensaver. 
And you, know, you can kind of put yourself there. You can begin, if you just take a moment in the quietness, you can feel the breeze coming off the ocean. You can smell the salt in the air. You can feel the sand between your toes. All of your worries and all of your cares are evaporating around you. The sun is beating off your face. You're lying back, lounging in a chair, sipping a cold glass of water. <laughs> now let me just ask you if you had this vision if, if I told you this was yours next week okay in one week's time scratch that in one week's time you're going to be at church on Monday next week if this is going to be yours, okay, you just, you just you put this picture up on your wall, think about what's in front of you. Now, if that was promised to you, do you think you'd make it through this week okay? Yeah, you'd be like, hey, I can put up with the screaming kids for one more week, right? I can deal with the crazy boss or the antics at work. I can deal with the chaos of life for one more week. I can make it through one more week because I know what awaits me, and what awaits me is so good. You see, this is exactly what Peter has done for the believers, except that is nothing compared to what awaits followers of Jesus Christ, amen? We have something so much better than sitting on a beach, Maybe there's beaches in heaven, I don't know, but that's not the point. What awaits us in an, is an inheritance, an inheritance, a, a piece of property where, listen, the point is not the place, the point is the person who exists in the place, the presence of God. That's what he's done for the believers. He said, this is your hope it awaits you, so no matter what you face in this life, you can do it. You can keep pressing on. And I want you to notice what he says here, to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see what he says? He says, listen, don't get distracted with other things. Set your hope fully here. Anchor your life right here. When Jesus Christ returns, he will bring you into glory, and all of the cares and struggles and trials of this life will fade away. Into the, they're going to evaporate like all of the stress and worries that evaporate maybe on a vacation, except so much better. But here's the key. That hope that is given to believers is not only, listen, not only intended to carry them through the suffering and trials of this life, it is actually intended to change them in their sufferings and trials of this life. You see, the future hope that awaits us is intended to have present consequences in our lives here and now. And the key to living this hope out in real life starts in the mind. Every spiritual battle is won or lost in the mind, and that's why the call here is to be spiritually alert to have a disciplined mind, to keep focused on what is true, what is right, what is beautiful. And there's two ways that Peter describes in verse 13 um, that teach us how to do this most effectively. He says this, prepare your minds for action. And the second way is this, be sober-minded. You see how everything revolves around the mind? Christian, just listen, listen, the way you think is going to dictate the way you live. And here, the Word of God is telling us that our minds matter immensely for how we live this life. This is, again, where the battle is won or lost. And the first phrase that he uses here is so interesting, prepare your minds for action. The, the literal rendering of this verse, literally it could be translated like this, gird up the loins of your mind. 
Now, in the ancient world, that would have had a significant kind of word picture attached to it. In the ancient world, they wore long robes that were um, likely very comfortable, but they would be cumbersome if you intended to do anything um, that would exert yourself, any kind of running, any kind of walking. If you had to go into battle, having a long flowing robe would get in the way. It would be actually more of a distraction. It would hinder you and distract you from being able to do what you were supposed to do. So what they would do in the ancient world is they'd take this long flowing robe and they would kind of pull it up and bunch it up and tuck it into their belt. They would cinch it up. They would gird up the robe around them so that they could now be more mobile and they could move more fluidly. They could do what they needed to do. They could run, they could walk, they could go into battle and fight. And this ties us even into this picture back to ancient Israel. You see, um, Israel and Egypt, they had been called out of slavery to begin a journey to the promised land. Remember the language that Peter has used for these believers. They're exiles of the dispersion. They've been scattered about. And interestingly, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were commanded actually to eat a Passover meal, their last meal in Egypt, and they were told in eating this meal that they were to gird up their loins, that they were to gird themselves up and get ready to travel. God was going to take them out and take them on a journey through the wilderness, and so they needed to prepare themselves for action. And here you can see how this applies to our lives. We are too called to have our minds girded up, to be prepared, to stay alert at all times, spiritually speaking, for action. There are things to be done And specifically, we need our minds girded up so that we can keep our hope fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if God is going to have your heart, he must first have your mind. Spiritual alertness is contrasted here with a a drunken indifference. You notice the next term he uses? He says to be sober-minded. To be sober-minded Um, not only forbids physical drunkenness, intoxication um, by any kind of substance, but it also forbids a a mind that is wandering into any kind of mental intoxication, into any kind of a mental addiction, in other words, that inhibits our spiritual alertness, something that would hinder us from staying spiritually alert and spiritually aware of what's going on. This is talking about things that would produce any kind of laziness of mind that ultimately lulls a Christian into sin through careless living. It's interesting that Peter uses this same word to be sober-minded in two different places in Peter. Uh, if, you, if you're kind of tracking with me in First Peter, just flip over to chapter 4, verse 7. And in 4, verse 7, here's what he says to the, the church here, the church is here. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded, look at this, for the sake of your prayers. In other words, stay spiritually alert, and the way you do that in this context is through prayer. You need to be diligently sobered and prepared spiritually by spending quality time in communion with God. He uses the same word again, sober-minded in chapter 5. Flip over 
or look over a page to five, verse eight. He says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's like, look, be, be on guard. Stay spiritually alert. Stay in prayer because prayer is your connection point with God. It's how you submit yourself in all things to the Lord Jesus Christ. But also stay spiritually alert because you have an, a great enemy who prowls around and he is seeking to devour your soul. He wants to trip you up. He wants to take you down. He wants to ravage your life with sin and temptation. He wants you to fall at every turn. He wants you to give in. This is a call for spiritual alertness. And the reason he, he gives us this call is because he knows how easily Christians can lose their spiritual alertness, their spiritual concentration. He knows how easily we can be distracted or intoxicated by other things. And especially, listen, you have to keep this in mind. This is given to us in the context of suffering and trial. Listen, it is much easier to stay the course when life is good, isn't it? It's much easier to avoid temptation when life is good, where you're not experiencing any pain or any suffering. It is much easier to slip into sin when you are experiencing great suffering and tragedy and turmoil and hardship in your life. Part of you just wants reprieve. You want a little bit of, of, of pleasure. You want a little bit of relaxation. You want something to get you out of the trial, away from the pain that you're in. And here, listen, the call is to remain alert to that temptation. The allurement of the world is especially intoxicating in moments of suffering. But here he calls us and he reminds us that we must set our hope fully. Listen to that word again. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be yours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do not be satisfied with the temporary satisfaction of sin. I was thinking a little bit about this, but as I thought of this word fully, it reminded me that so many of us um, are partially setting our hope on the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this is a real problem in, in many Christians' lives where if you were to look at your life, what you would see, if you were really to do kind of a deep dive and inspect your spiritual life, what you would find out is that you have partially set your hope on the Lord Jesus Christ, on especially his return. But in many ways, you have a divided heart. You at least have probably a distracted heart. You have turned to other things in this world that are alluring to you, that provide you with a sense of temporary satisfaction and ease in this life. And what, they're at, what it's actually doing is dulling the beauty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is diminishing the value of what awaits you. Many of us have eyes that are fixed upon the, the attractions and the spectacles of this world we're intoxicated by what this world has to offer us. We're constantly tempted. We're drawn into a careless living, a life of self-indulgence, a life of pleasure and ease. We are easily fixated upon our careers, upon money and possessions, easily in our culture fixated upon recreation and hobbies, easily fixated upon our reputation, upon friendships, upon education, or upon power and authority. We are drawn away from setting our minds fully on the grace that is ours. There is a way of setting our mind on things above, not on things below. 
And I just want to give you three things that God's word repeatedly tells us we must do to set our mind on things above, not on things below. The first one is this. We've already mentioned it. Communion with God in prayer. We need to be a people. If you're going to be spiritually alert, you must be a person of prayer. This is a non-negotiable for followers of Jesus Christ. I fear that so many Christians are not spiritually alert and are easily swayed and tempted because they are not a people of prayer. Prayer is a means by which we align our hearts with God's heart. Prayer is a means by which uh, the, the temporary satisfactions of this world are dulled and replaced with the eternal satisfactions of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus, he even begins his prayer with, with our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, even if we begin to pray as Jesus calls us to pray, instantly what God is doing is realigning our heart and our minds away from the things of this world to the things of the world that is yet to come. This is what prayer does for our soul. It reminds us of what is most important. The second way is it is so obvious and so clear, but I'm so convinced that it's the simple things in the Christian life that matter most. We must be a people of the word of God. We have to be a people of the word of God. We can't just saturate ourselves with the words of the world and expect that this life is now going to be easily lived for the glory of Jesus Christ. We have to be a people whose minds are being filled and saturated with the glory of God in the word of God. We must read this book and we must allow it to sink deeply within our hearts and souls and minds. Third thing is this, we must be with his people. We must be like this. This is essential. Listen, for your spiritual health, this is essential for you to stay spiritually alert. You must not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but instead gathering together. Listen, we are called to exhort one another, to encourage one another all the more until the day draws near. Time is short. Listen, God's people, we get around each other and we help, listen, we help one another pull our gaze away from this world and put our gaze back on Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what we do together. See, living hope is intended to change me, but that begins when I remain spiritually alert, when I have this commitment to have a disciplined mind. Secondly, a living hope changes me when I remain spiritually awake, but that requires that I make a decisive break. Now, I want to read verses 14 through 16 again because really they're a package deal. They, they say really the same thing. At the very heart of these verses is the same command. Listen to what he says. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy these verses describe essentially one thing, and that is this, the, the demand for followers of Jesus Christ to be holy, a holy people. Holiness is about our moral purity. It speaks about our righteousness. It's about a manner of life that, as we see here, reflects the God who has actually saved us. There are two aspects to holiness when it comes to the Christian life. The first aspect is to be set apart from sin. To be holy, to be morally pure, you must be set apart from sin. You must deal with the pervasive or pervading sin in your life, and you, be, you must be willing to make a decisive break with that. But the other side of holiness is this. You must be devoted to something, to what is right. In this 
Second point here, I want us to focus on the first half of that equation, what it means to be set apart from sin, what it means to make this decisive break with sin, to be spiritually awake to the reality of sin in our lives. In verse 14, Peter says this, as obedient children, he grounds our our hope and our behavior in our identity. You see, Christians are children of God. Christians are people, yes, who have been rescued and redeemed, but Christians are people who have been adopted into a new family. We have a new father who loves us and whom we follow and whom we desire to please. We have been given a new birth through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we have been born again to this living hope. Really, this reminds us of what the gospel has accomplished in us and for us. And see, here's here's the reality of this. You see, there are many people who are just simply trying to live moral lives. They're simply trying to do the right things. But here's the reality, biblically speaking. If God is not your father, living a holy life will be impossible because holy conduct is the fruit of being a member of God's family. You can't be holy unless you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Not truly, not by God's standard. And the reality for all of humanity is that none of us have the power to actually change our nature. None of us can make ourselves holy. We can't pull ourselves up, so to speak, by our own bootstraps. We can't change our heritage. We can't change our spiritual DNA. Every one of us is born into sin. Every one of us has lived in rebellion against God. Sin has corrupted our very nature. We have no hope of changing our foundational DNA and nature, but the good news is God can change it. God can bring new life. God can bring our new birth about. And the first step for you is to become spiritually awake. Now, I want to speak to a group of people in here who walked into here, and your life is just a complete mess. Your life is in shambles. You walked in here maybe not knowing why you were here. You just know that something is deeply wrong in your life. Maybe you've never even heard the gospel, or maybe you've never heard it clearly or understood it, but you're looking at your life, and as you look at your life, there's something missing. There's something fundamentally wrong. No matter what you try, no matter how hard you try, you can't seem to fix it. You can't seem to make any sense of it. Everything seems to be crumbling all around you. What you need most in this moment of your life is a spiritual awakening to the reality of who you are before God. You need a spiritual awakening to who God actually is. You need an awakening to the reality that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that you have offended a holy God who created you to live for his glory. Instead, you have chosen to live for your glory. You've chosen to live not for him, but selfishly for the pleasures of this world. Right now, maybe even you're wrestling in your heart and in your soul with the decisions you're making to pursue this world and the things of it. And what God is doing is he's trying to wake you up in this moment to a better reality, a reality for which you have been created. You need to be awakened to the hope of salvation. You you need to be awakened to the reality that you can't save yourself today, but by God's grace, he can save you. You see, what we are anchoring ourselves in is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And every single one of us who follows Jesus Christ only follows Jesus Christ because God invaded our lives. Even while we were sinners, even when we were enemies of God, God loved us and came to rescue us. Amen? 
I mean, this is the testimony of every single follower of Jesus Christ. I, I was living a life of sin, and God came and rescued me. He opened my eyes, and he showed me that I was a sinner, and I needed a Savior. See, the gospel reminds us that God and only God could save us, that he had to come to this earth as a perfect human being, that he had to die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins, that he lovingly and willingly took our punishment for us, that he paid it in full, and that he rose from the grave alive, conquering sin and death so that all those who believe in him can have the living hope that only he gives. And once we have been awakened to this living hope, again, we are called to be living this hope. We need to be made holy by God, and now we need to become holy as we live in Him. And you see, a Christian character is supposed to reflect the character of their divine Father. We are to be obedient children. And here, we need to focus on this first part of holiness, again, uh, making a decisive break with sin. See, obedient children are aware of what they must not do, not only what they must do. And here, look at what he says. He says this in verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. There are things that we must not do anymore. There are things that obedient children of God simply refuse to do, but we need to be awakened to what those things are. Here's how he defines these things, passions of our former ignorance. This describes the desires and passions that characterized us before we knew the truth of the gospel, before our eyes were opened by the grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how Peter describes some of these, these passions, if you're in there, Peter, again, they're flipped to chapter 4. And in verse 3, look at what he says to the, to the believers there. He says, for the time, in verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Look at this. Here's what he says you must not do anymore. Listen, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So you've got to step out of your former life. You can't participate in the things that the world loves and desires. Their sinful passions and desires, they can have no place in your life. There must be a decisive break. Paul says it like this in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 5. It'll be on the screen behind me. He says, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. In Ephesians 4.18, Paul says this, that they were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Listen, they once lived like that because of their hardness of heart. They were ignorant to the truth of God because they loved their sin. There's no, there's no place for loving sin in the Christian life. There's no place for desiring to be like the world in the Christian life. And listen, there is a desperate battle that needs to be fought in every single Christian heart. Because again, why is he saying this? Because the temptation to do the things of our past, to do the things of the world are strong. And in the moments of weakness in our lives, we have a tendency to begin to slide back into old patterns of sin, don't we? Not one of us is beyond sliding back into patterns of sin. Not one of us is beyond making foolish, incredibly foolish decisions. I, I share this all the time. Listen, this, this is becoming so, so uh, prevalent in my life. I have seen just 
year after year after year, I watch friends of mine, pastors, followers of Jesus Christ, make unbelievably stupid decisions, sinful decisions, ruin their life, lose their ministry, lose their family. I watch it happen. Listen, every one of us could do the same thing if we are not spiritually awake to the reality and the power of sin in our lives. Peter is pointing something out to us that is so important. The Christian life is not and cannot be passive. There's no let go and let God in the Christian life, okay? The Christian life is a life of discipline. The Christian life is a life of getting after the things of God. The Christian life is a life of death, putting to death the old man. I refuse to walk down these paths any longer. I refuse to pursue the sin that is enticing me. I refuse to give in. I refuse, I refuse, I refuse by the grace and power of God within me. Listen, Christian, this is so important. There, there is a, listen, for whatever reason in the Christian life, there has been a minimalization of holiness. We just, we just think that Christianity is about coming to church on Sunday, maybe hanging out with Christians. Ever. We're playing a game. Listen, Christian life is about a life of holiness. A holiness that refuses, listen, to be in partnership with sin. Obedience does not happen without effort. Grace-fueled, spirit-empowered effort, but it is effort nonetheless. Ungodly desires still knock at the door of every heart and tempt us to turn from God. The first part of pursuing holiness is all about being spiritually awake to the temptations of the world, the tactics of Satan, and the tendencies of your own sinful flesh. And once you're awakened to those, listen, you must commit to make a decisive break with them. Anytime God reveals to you a pattern of sin or a place of sin or an opportunity for sin, you must commit in the moment by the grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ to make a decisive break. I am dead to that. I will no longer walk in this sin. I will choose righteousness. I don't know if you've been following the, uh, the news, Christian news, or even kind of secular news. I don't know if any of you ever heard, uh, have heard that uh, apparently Kanye West has given his life to Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've heard that. Now, listen, I hope, listen, I don't know what you think about that. I hope you're not um, overly cynical about that. I hope you desire that this is true. Uh, if, for those of you who don't know Kanye West, this is my pop culture reference for the morning. And uh, I'm sorry you have to crawl out from under the rock that you have been living under. If you don't know, he's married to Kim Kardashian, ladies, if that's helpful. I can tell you this, I don't know whether he's saved or not. I, I know this for a fact. I know he has been preached the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Like not some watered down version of the gospel and not some health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. I mean the actual gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came to die for sinners, that he rose victoriously from the grave, and that if you surrender your life to him as Lord and Master, then you can be saved. I know for a fact he's been preached the true gospel. And my point is not to make a judgment on whether or not he's actually saved. Time will tell just like the rest of us. I pray to God that he is, and not because of the platform that he has. That has nothing to do with it, because he's one soul, one more soul, who needs to know the life of Jesus Christ and the love of God in Jesus Christ. But what I want to draw attention to is, is what I read about um, his conversion in, uh, in a couple of articles this past week. It's really interesting. He's claimed that he's come to Jesus Christ, and one of the things he's declared is that he will no longer produce secular music. Did you hear that? He's no longer going to be producing secular rap music anymore. Instead, he's only going to be doing gospel music. That's, that's what he's said. 
In fact, the first album that he's coming out with since his conversion is called Jesus is King. Now, again, I'm not trying to make a statement on his salvation, but what I find really interesting is that he understands at least, listen, at least on the surface level, an important quality of a follower of Jesus Christ, and that is this. If you truly give your life to Jesus Christ, you can no longer be who you once were. You have to make decisive breaks with your past life. And he, at the very least, listen, on paper, is demonstrating he's willing to do just that. And just think about the consequences of this in his life. Right? He is making a decisive break with the, with the culture and the community that he actually helped to create. Do you think this is going to go well for him? But you know that's the whole point of following Jesus. We are called to do the very same thing. We draw these lines. We make a break with the former passions of our ignorance that once characterized us. You see, before Jesus, our life was determined by unrestrained impulses to sin. Now, in God's common grace, we don't all act on our impulses the way we could. But... Human nature, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit, is dominated by sinful, selfish desires. And in coming to Christ, we have made a decisive break. And listen, here's the awesome news. In coming to Christ, we have been given the power to remain spiritually awake and to continue to break away from our life of sin. This is what our living hope does. It changes how we live. New desires and impulses birthed by God's Spirit. New desires, not just to fight against sin, but new desires to hate sin. I love what J.C. Ryle wrote. He wrote one of my favorite books of all time, a book called Holiness, and he wrote it in the 1800s, and he says this. He says this, A holy man will follow after temperance and self-denial. He will labor to mortify the desires of his body, to crucify his flesh with his affections and lusts, to curb his passions, to restrain his carnal inclinations, lest at any time they break loose. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, right? Every athlete who wants to win the prize, he disciplines his body, he makes it his slave so that after he preaches to others, he himself will not be disqualified. He will give up everything he has to so that he can become the person he's supposed to be in the sight of God. Ryle went on to say this. He said, He will dread all filthiness and uncleanness of spirit and seek to avoid all things that might draw him into him. He knows his own heart is like tinder and will diligently keep clear of the sparks of temptation. Paul wrote in Romans 13, 11 through 14, he said, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. He's speaking to Christians. Listen, Christians, listen to this message. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Listen, doesn't that sound an awful lot of this? Listen, uh, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you with the revelation of Jesus. It's coming. It's coming so soon. Jesus is coming back. Wake up. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, 34, wake up from your drunken stupor. As is right, 
And do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, wake up, church. There's work to be done. There's people out there who don't know Jesus. And we're sitting here fooling around with sin. Sitting here running after the desires of the flesh. Cultivating the passions of flesh that cost God his own son. Put those off and start running towards holiness and goodness because there are people who need to know what you know. We must daily make a decisive break. Do not be conformed. This is a sweeping call for a transformation in our lives. Are you, listen, are you spiritually awake this morning? Have you been awakened to the reality of your sin and your need of a Savior? Are you awake, Christian, right now to the areas of sin in your life that are tempting you? Are you awake right now to the areas of sin in your life that are actually grabbing grabbing, a hold of you? Are you done with your sin? If so, praise God. Even now in this moment, the first step, listen, you're like, what do I do once I see this? Listen, repent right now. Just go before God. God is so good. He's so gracious. Repent. Fall on your face before God. Say, God, I need you. I need you. I have sinned against you. I need your help, God. I want to live for you. I don't want to walk in sin any longer, God. And by your grace and by your power, I will walk with you. Living hope changes me when I remain spiritually alert, when I remain spiritually awake, and finally, when I remain spiritually ambitious. And here's what that requires, a devoted heart. A devoted heart. Our spiritual ambition, again, has that uh, kind of twin side of holiness. Not only are we to put off the old man, uh, are we to not pursue sin, but we are instead to pursue holiness, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul said in Romans 13, 14. This is a call to be completely devoted to God. You see, our our motivating aim in life, our motivating passion and desire, our motivating longing and aspiration, our motivating goal and drive is to please God. That's what the Bible says is to be every Christian's motivation. We are to be Desiring to please God in both what we avoid and what we pursue. While we are cautious about sin, rightly so, we are ambitious about righteousness. There is to be a holy longing in our souls for more holiness. Jesus said this, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be what? Satisfied. I want you to notice in verse 15 what he says. He said, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Notice this. The, the one who called you to salvation is the one who calls you to sanctification. The one who calls you into his holiness calls you to pursue a life of holiness. This is the mission for your life and mine. We must be pursuing holiness. There's no getting around it. We must be a people whose hearts are fully devoted to this pursuit. We are called to be holy to notice in all of our conduct. Every area of our life is to fall under this umbrella of holiness. And the reason we are called to be holy is because the God who called us to himself is holy. In other words, the pattern for holiness is God himself. 
He's the model of holiness. He's the one we look at and we look to and we say, that's what I'm supposed to look like. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's how I'm supposed to respond in this situation. Let me say it like this. The bar of holiness for our lives is set not by ourselves, okay? The the bar of holiness is, is not arbitrary. It's not some kind of a fuzzy, mystical bar. It is not self-determined. You are not the measure or standard of holiness. It's not your preferences. It's certainly not your opinions. You don't get to determine what holiness is. Um, Holiness, the bar of holiness, is not set by your neighbor or by your spouse. It's not like you can look at somebody else and say, well, that's the bar. I just got to be as good as this person. That's not the the standard of holiness. Uh, The standard of holiness is not even set by your pastor. Praise the Lord. The bar of holiness is set by your God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus set forth the same standard of holiness. He said this. He said, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we know, listen, we know that in this life, not one of us can be sinless like God. Not one of us can be perfect. Not one of us will be perfectly holy. But his holiness is still to be our spiritual ambition, our spiritual aim. It is the goal to which we have been called and for which God has equipped us with his spirit and with his word. It's the call that must transform every day of our lives, every moment of our lives, every thought and every action. All of our conduct must be driven and dictated by this one command, to be holy as our heavenly Father is holy. This is the point of verse 16 where he he grounds this in the Old Testament Scriptures, he says, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is likely a reference to Leviticus 19, which quotes this directly, but really this is a common theme in the entire book of Leviticus, this call to be holy like God is holy. It's really the theme of the Old Testament for the people of God. The context of Leviticus is so crucial, by the way. If you you read through Leviticus, what you see is all of these laws and rules and standards that God establishes for his people. And the point is this. The point is to constantly remind his people that God is holy. God is different. God is greater. Everything God does is right and pure and perfect. You know, God is the ultimate moral authority of the universe. Morality exists, in other words, because God exists. Morality is not malleable. It's not culturally determined. It is fixed and established. It is an eternal reality because our God is an eternal reality. All true morality finds its basis in the very character of God. And the final reason why something is right and something is wrong and why there are moral absolutes in the universe is that God delights in things that reflect his moral character. And he hates what is contrary to his character. And as we consider this call to be holy, I just want to give you from here four reasons to be holy like God is holy. I'm going to put them up on the screen for you just to consider as you think about what this means, why we ought to do this in our lives. I want to compel you towards pursuing holiness to greater degrees. Here's the first reason why we ought to be holy. It makes us visible. It makes us visible. It identifies us as God's children. It shows that we are different like the God we love and serve is different. 
It reminds us, and this was the intent in the Old Testament, it reminds God's people that they're pilgrim people. They're passing through. They're on their way to a better land. We are called to live differently from the world around us. All of those commands in the book of Leviticus for the people of God in the Old Testament, they were a perpetual reminder. We're different. We're not like these other people. We do weird things. We are a peculiar people. And God said, good, that's right. That's the way I want it. I want you to look different so that they can see that I am different from the gods they serve. It makes us visible. Peter's, by the way, going to address many areas of our lives as we move through this letter that are going to show how we are so different from the culture around us. Here's the second reason why you should want to be holy like God is holy. It brings us blessing. It actually brings us, like there is a benefit to you and me. It's not just that it puts God on display, it makes us visible and identifiable. It actually blesses us. It leads to greater blessings in this life. Spiritual ambition to be holy will produce spiritual blessings. They will deepen your relationship with God. They will bring you closer to the God you serve. You will be allowed to access greater experiences of his presence in your lives. We say this around our house, and I know we say this around this church a lot, but if you choose to sin, you choose to suffer, right? But, but listen, the flip side of this is actually more important. If you choose to obey, you choose blessing. You choose obedience, and you're choosing blessing every time without fail, right? Parents, like, tell your kids, right? How many times do you try and convince your kids of this? I'm telling you, if you just choose to do what's right, I will bless you. You're like, pleading with them, right? You're like, and this would be so much easier on both of us. God looks at us as his children, and he says, listen, be obedient children. Like, choose to obey, and, and you will choose to receive my blessings. I will pour out blessings upon you, blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace. You will see more of me. You will have more joy in this life. You will draw near to me in ways that you can't even imagine. You'll be able to endure suffering and trials and tragedy like no one else around you. All you have to do is choose obedience, and you choose blessing. third reason is this. It makes us useful. It makes us more useful. I mean, Paul writes to Timothy, and he tells him about how holiness makes us useful vessels in the Father's house. And there are some vessels that are, are not as useful because they are not holy. They're not, they're not pursuing holiness. They're living in sin. I mean, you think of that imagery of, of a vessel in, your, in the Father's house being put to good use. You know, I, you know I, I don't know, like pick a vessel. Like, what are you going to do with a dirty fork? Right? Who wants to be a dirty fork? I could have picked a lot of things, by the way. Like, what do you do with a dirty fork? What's a dirty fork good for? What a dirty, rusted-out fork? I mean, I mean, maybe you keep it around, you, you use it, I don't know, what do you do with a dirty fork? You go to the garden, you give it to the kids to play as a play toy in the garden? You know, stick it in a socket? I don't know. <laughs> it's not good for anything. It's not useful. But you see, when you are holy, when you are pursuing righteousness in your life and obedience, you become a useful vessel. You're useful in this sense. You are now able to serve people around you better. You become a better spouse. You become a better brother or sister in Christ. You become a better employee. You become a better child. And you become a better anything. Everything gets better when you choose holiness. Let me give you the last one. It's the most important. Here's why you want to be holy, because it exalts our Savior. It exalts our Savior. This, this is it, okay? This, this is the most important reason why you want to be holy today. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there should be nothing more important to you right now than wanting to exalt your Savior, Jesus Christ. 
There may be a lot of other things that are good and right and true, but be nothing that trumps your desire to see Jesus Christ exalted above all. Amen? Like his glory, put him on display, his power on display, his grace on display. And when we pursue holiness, you want to know what we're doing? We're reflecting God to the world. You see, we're made visible as God's children, but what we're doing is this. We are projecting God out to the world. The world is looking at us, and they're saying, you're so different. I mean, look at the way you live your life. You have more joy. You have more purpose. You have more clarity. You have more conviction. You have a conscience that is activated for you to do right things. You do things with excellence. There's a beauty to what you're doing. And the answer that we can give is this. Listen, we want people to see the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, to be like God, to be holy like God is holy, is ultimately to be like Jesus Christ. And to be like Jesus is to bring greater exaltation and glory to our God. The human picture of perfect holiness is the God-man, Christ Jesus. You want a model to follow? You want somebody to look at as a human being for the holiness of God? Look at Jesus Christ. Stare long and hard at him. You know, when it comes to your personal holiness, just listen for a moment, listen. The factor that makes the difference in your life, the foundational factor that makes the greatest difference in your life for personal holiness is not your intelligence. Isn't that good news? Hallelujah. It's not the number of books that you've read. It's not the number of sermons you've listened to. It's not the number of Christian conferences you've been to or the number of Christian camps or seminars you've attended. Here it is, listen. But the quality of fellowship with Christ that you maintain throughout the many seasons and challenges of life. That's it. That's the greatest qualification for your holiness. The quality of communion and fellowship with your Savior, Jesus Christ. To be like Jesus. You say, how do I do that? Listen, to be like Jesus, we must be much with Jesus. We need to learn to linger in his presence through his word and by his spirit and amongst his people. We need a devoted heart to know and to be like Jesus. John chapter 15 says it like this, Jesus himself, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. You see, exalting Christ should be our constant aim. J.I. Packer said, there is no holiness without a Christ-centered, Christ-seeking, Christ-serving, Christ-adoring heart. And the plan of salvation requires us to get our hearts into this frame and keep them there. See, church, listen, our living hope cannot be stored in the basement. It cannot sit on a shelf collecting dust. It must be embraced and experienced. It must be believed and it must be lived. That's what we are after. That's what God is after in our lives. A living hope a living hope because we have a living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that changes me when I remain spiritually aware, spiritually awake, and spiritually ambitious. May we exalt him as we set our minds on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make this so in our lives. Father, we long to long for you to be made like you to increasing degrees. So God, help us to fix our gaze upon Jesus. Even now, Lord, would you reorient the desires of our hearts to see our Savior exalted above all, to lift his name high, to give him glory. Father, we want to live out our hope so that all might see and know the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Father, we commit to you now our lives and our hearts. Father, I pray for those maybe who for the first time is considering the gospel, is looking at their life and having an awakening to the reality of who they are without you. And God, I pray that in this moment you would give them a longing to meet with you and give them a surrender to you, Lord that they might humbly bow before you and confess that they need you, that you are Lord of all, that they long to be saved by your mercy and grace, that they can look to the cross and see their sin of being paid for on the Savior. Father, may all of our hearts be drawn to the exaltation of Jesus Christ, his resurrecting power, the living hope that is ours in him. And Father, may we now with that power live out the hope that has been given so graciously to us. We pray this now in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.